Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 32 of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. In this season, we've been looking at the ways that our cultural viewpoints, our church traditions, and personal experiences impact our view of the Bible. Last week, we learned from Dr. Tama Bryant Davis on how to read the Bible through a lens of trauma and how that can give us more empathy and help us to ask more insightful questions. She also talked about the stigma of mental health, ways to better support those who have suffered from trauma, and the importance of creating safe spaces at church. Today, we're going to talk about ways to make our churches more inclusive, and we'll focus our attention on ways to better support our disabled communities at church, with a special focus on understanding the needs of those on the autism spectrum. This is a special and important episode for me, since I have several loved ones who are on the autism spectrum, and I know some of the challenges they face when it comes to matters of faith, communication, relating to others, and finding a spiritual home. Our guest today is Dr. Lamar Hardwick, who is known as the Autism Pastor, and is the author of a fantastic new book entitled Disability and the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion which is published by InterVarsity Press. His book provides a powerful framework on how church leaders can begin taking action to make their worship services more accessible. He reminds us that people with disabilities live in a world that is not built for them, and that the vast majority of churches are not built with disabled bodies in mind. His book is filled with practical insights for anyone who wants to help make churches more inclusive, accessible, and safe for our disabled communities. In today's podcast, we learn from Dr. Lamar Hardwick about what it feels like to grow up with undiagnosed autism and what led him to pursue autism testing in his mid-30s. He talks about what it meant when he found out that he had autism and ways that he processed the information. He also talks about the autism grief cycle, how to love and care for people with autism, and how to combat the stigma of autism at church. Dr. Hardwick also shares key insights for ministry leaders on ways to remove barriers at church for those with invisible disabilities and how disability theology gives us an important lens for viewing God and our Bibles. I pray that this conversation helps us all grow in more awareness, more acceptance, and advocacy for our disabled communities. You can get notes from today's podcast, video clips, and more insights on Dr. Lamar Hardwick's new book, on my blog at mikedogato.org. Here's our conversation. Yeah, I wanted to start by asking you about sharing the autism diagnosis. It's a very personal decision, mm-hmm. a very intentional decision. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, so I was um, diagnosed officially in December of 2014. Um I should say that that came after a year of me doing my own investigation. I, um, you know, I ran into what I call a proverbial wall, um, always knowing probably since the age of seven or eight, that there are significant differences between me and my peers. Um, I didn't understand a lot of times what people were talking about, um, took things very literally, didn't understand things like sarcasm. Um, I later came to realize that there was, such a thing called body language and social cues, which I had no clue about. And oftentimes uh, I tell people, I don't, my brain doesn't have an interpreter. So uh, we've all heard that 90% of communication is nonverbal. 
Um, so for a person like myself, I don't understand that. Um, and so I, I always knew, but I didn't have the language. It wasn't until I got uh, older as an adult um, where I ran into a wall during a leadership transition. And I really started to reflect and say, okay, I've heard some of these things about interactions with me my whole life. It was now coming in adult language. And so I determined that, you know, everyone can't be wrong. Um, and so I had to try to figure that out. So I, I actually did my own investigation uh, for about a year after hearing some things from a colleague. Uh, and then that led to the diagnosis in 2014. I eventually did go public and share it first with my church in March of 2015. The primary reason was because, um, you know, after reflecting on a lot of relationships that didn't work out and I never knew why, um, I was actually nervous that the church that I was pastoring at the time uh, may be impacted by that because the church was growing. Um, but people were having a hard time reconciling the difference between the Lamar that was on the stage on Sunday. It was very animated in, in his preaching versus the Lamar who was off the stage, who was very introverted, very quiet, didn't understand body language, social cues. And oftentimes uh, the dichotomy between those two persons was a, kind of off-putting for a lot of people. Um, and all these things were happening without me before my diagnosis, all these things were happening without me knowing. So in a nutshell, you know, there are probably dozens of people who walked away from the church after having what they considered a bad social interaction with me that I had no clue why they didn't come back. Once I had the diagnosis, I wanted to get out in front of it uh, and just share with people, you know, hey, this is what I just discovered about myself uh, in an official capacity. Just to teach people, to help people to understand that, you know, if you do have a interaction with me and it doesn't go the way that you thought it should, understand there are a lot of factors that I'm not able to control. Um, so here's what we have to do. We have to really be honest with one another. If you think I'm upset, because oftentimes my facial expressions and body language don't mirror the environment, but I'm unaware of that. So I could look disinterested in what you're saying. I could look like uh, you're being bothersome to me, like I don't want to be bothered with talking with the congregants. And that nothing could be further than the truth. And in fact, those are a lot of things that I heard about my candidacy for being the lead pastor. And I knew those are things I would never do intentionally. So the only way to actually to get out in front of it was to just be forthright and honest with my congregation and say, this is what you've been experiencing. This is what I've been experiencing. Um, so from now on, we just can't make assumptions about each other. If you think I'm angry or upset because my body language or my facial expression, just ask me and I'll tell you that I'm not. I oftentimes don't know that that's the vibe that you're picking up. So uh, it was very personal, but a lot of it was for the sake of helping people to understand that some of what you were experiencing with me is not necessarily my fault, but there's a way that we can work through it together if you're willing to to be accepting of this new diagnosis. So I wanted to, people to feel more comfortable with approaching me because that seemed to be a problem that we were having in the church. Although they loved my preaching, but people still didn't feel like I was approachable. Tell me about the process you went through as you started getting this feedback from others and you're just kind of like looking at, as people are sharing with you, maybe they feel that you are not engaging in the way that they want. And so you're like kind of just mentally taking notes and you're totally self-aware 
of all this feedback coming back to you, which then leads you on this journey to begin this investigation that you talk about. Mm-hmm. What was that journey like as you began to explore the autism spectrum and reading about it? How did that feel to you? And at what point did you feel like I should probably get tested? Yeah. So, um, again, I, I always knew like, you know, the best description that I can give, and I often say this to people, is that around the age of seven or eight, it started to feel like the world was in on an inside joke that I didn't get. Um, and so I just really, by the time I hit middle school, I just faked a lot of things. I pretended to understand things I didn't understand. Um, and the autism community is called masking, where you mimic behaviors of those around you just so that you don't stand out. Um, so a lot of who I was in my early teen to early young adult years was a version of a compilation of a lot of different people who I noticed those people seem to be popular. They seem to get along with people. I'm just going to do what they do. So there wasn't a really an authentic Lamar. It was, it was a bunch of different people who I noticed who were very uh, successful in relating to people, but I still didn't understand the reasons why I don't understand why people seem to like this person or why they didn't seem to, to like me. Um, so when I, when I finally got to the stage where I was ready to investigate, um, you know, I, I was, I was 35, 36 at the time, um, working as a youth and young adult pastor at a church that I later became a lead pastor. One of the most significant factors is while I was doing my doctorate, we were asked to take a class in a psychology department in which we had to do somewhere between 12 and 15 personality assessments. One of those was we had to ask seven people who were close to us or work with us to give an assessment of us. And there's an older gentleman that I work with who was the executive pastor. He had been a past seminary president. He's you know, like a father figure in a lot of ways, so I really respected his opinion. He wrote an assessment of me and uh, and I quote his assessment read, Lamar gets has a hard time picking up on social cues. Lamar gets laser focused on one task at a time, so on and so forth. And it literally read like diagnostic criteria for being on the autism spectrum. That was the first time I ever heard the term social cue. So like most people, when you don't know what something means, you Google it. So I Googled it <laughs> and I ended up then understanding that this is a whole world that I knew nothing about. And it started to give me the language to understand this is what people have been saying about me my whole life, but now I have a term for it. So that assessment was sort of like the last uh, point of contact for me to understand, okay, there is something here. Uh, This gentleman is obviously observing it. I trust him because before that, and I had learned how to defend, deny, deflect because I grew up being bullied. So even some of the things I was hearing from the adults, um, I just had spent, you know, 20 plus years learning how to deny everything. But because I really respected him and he gave an objective observation, that's when I realized, okay, everyone can't be wrong. I've been hearing this my whole life. Um, So that's when I started to do the research and it took me down the trail of um, here's what this is and here's what this is called. And here's the reasons why Um, you struggle. I I went on to do some online assessments uh, for autism Asperger's. Uh, continued, I probably took 10 different online assessments, which, you know, are not necessarily diagnostic tools, but they're very helpful. All of them continue to point to the fact that, you know, you're, there's a 98% chance you're on the autism spectrum. Um, I took facial recognition assessments where you're, 
where you could go in and try to recognize different facial expressions. I had no clue, Mike, how many different facial expressions there really were. For me, it was smiling, which I only really was able to recognize when it's attached to laughter. Um, so all the different facial expressions, I think there are maybe 30 something questions. I think I got three of them right. So I realized that there's a lot of things that I have been, uh, not, not aware of that even existed in the world that I, that I lived in. And so that, that jumped off that, that whole year long journey of investigating. And so at, probably at the end of that year, somewhere around the end of the year, I finally got the courage to approach my wife and say, um, you know, I think I know what's going on with me. I think I know what some of our communication challenges have been over the years. Uh, and so she ended up helping me find someone to diagnose me as an adult, which is extremely hard to, to do, um, even though it's more common now. Um, seven years ago, it wasn't very common to find someone who was willing to do that. Uh, and that ended up resulting in weeks of assessments, my wife had to take assessments on her observation of me doing some history, talking to my mother, my older sister. Um, but in that process, because I had already done a little of my homework, I was 99% sure that it was going to turn out what I thought it was. So at least from that aspect, it didn't catch me off guard. Uh, I was actually looking for the diagnosis because I had longed for years for a way to describe how I observed the world and how I interacted with the world. I just didn't have the language. Um, so for me, it was a welcoming process. Although on the back end, there were still some, some challenges because although it was something I sought out after I got the official diagnosis, there was a whole process similar to the grief process because I tell people it was like meeting myself for the first time. So I actually stayed with that therapist, my wife and I for two years to help me sort of unravel complicated past because the person who I thought I was was not who everybody was experiencing. So I had to really work through that and realize that a lot of the guilt that I carried from relationships that ended that I had no reason, no understanding why I had to work through the process of holding myself responsible for things that I didn't know and didn't know how to fix. So it was a welcoming process. It was a lot of work. So I don't want people to get the impression I just got a diagnosis and everything was fine. No, it took me two years to, to work through understanding what that meant for my past and for my future. Mm. Can you can you dig into that grief process? Because not only are you grieving, and like you said, kind of rediscovering who you are in light of this diagnosis, but also you have loved ones, you have your wife, and you have others who care for you mm -hmm. who might also be grieving. Um about missed opportunities from the past. Um, and I think about also for parents listening in and they might realize that maybe they have a child who might have autism and might be also going through a grieving time as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what people have to understand is natural. Um, and sometimes when I say this, it's it's not necessarily popular because I think people would really rather me say that everything was all good. Um, but it, it can be very traumatic um, because you play a lot of tapes in your head about things that have happened over the years. Um, so, so acknowledging that and having uh, a therapist to help me walk through that was extremely helpful uh, because I wasn't left alone. And then there's a reality that, um, you know, there's different types of 
loss, um, one of which, and I studied this um, years ago, one of which is called intrapsychic loss. It's the loss of the feeling of the dreams and hopes that you had, um, or even the impression of who you are and your space in the world. And, and all of that changed. Um, and so, so for parents, just understand that that's, it's a natural part of the process, although um, it doesn't mean that there's not a great and highest potential for your child to be able to reach. And so, you know, I think it's first dealing with what is so that you can shift and dream about what can be. Um, and so, you know, just walking through that process and having somebody to, to walk with me through it was extremely, extremely helpful because I don't, I don't imagine I would be able to reach any level of success that I've been able to reach without having to unravel all of that. And so it is very much similar to the grief process. And, you know, um, I spent years as a hospice chaplain, so I'm very familiar with that. It's, it's not a direct line. Um, so you're not going to go through it steps one through five. Um, and, and sometimes those things will circle back around too. Um, especially as you get to milestones like, uh, prom and, uh, the first dates and driving and those types of things. If, if that becomes challenges for your child, so you're going to have to walk through that process. Um, but I, I invite people to engage in it. Don't run from it. Uh, because on the other side of that is where you can really, really dream about what's possible for your child and then reaching their highest potential. But first understanding that it may not be what you thought it would be, just like I was not the person that I thought I was. Um, but I am so much better uh, because of that process. So I encourage parents and family members to lean in uh, and don't take it as a quote unquote death sentence. There's so much life on the other side of that that is possible. Mm-hmm. What were some things that really helped you as you had people like your wife and others who loved you? come alongside to walk with you, what were some things that you found was super helpful? And, and also I'm curious about maybe things that were said to you that maybe were well-intended, but was actually hurtful. Yeah. The, the things that were really helpful, especially from the closest people to me, like my wife, um, and others. And I would, and I would add coworkers. And at the time, you know, I had a staff that, work for me. Um, the things that were really helpful was just the opportunities to reorient people to how my neurology works, because a lot of the struggles and the miscommunication were just based on, you know, being on the autism spectrum, your brain just works a certain way and it's not in the majority. Uh, so I tell people often that I live in a world that my brain is not built for. Um, but what was helpful is to have people who were supportive of taking the time to listen, me to describe my experiences with them, because I think oftentimes what happens when we're dealing with, you know, persons with any type of disability, whether it's intellectual, developmental or physical, we spend a majority of the time trying to make them better for the world. And we spend far less time on trying to make the world better for them. And so it was, it was encouraging that I had people around me who were from, you know, from my wife to family members to staff who were interested in how to help make the world better for me. And that meant sitting and listening to what my experiences with them are, because 
what led to the diagnosis is me understanding their experiences with me. What helped us to become more comfortable is for me to have the opportunity to, to expand on my experiences with them, why I thought the way I thought, how my brain works, how I understand communication. So even just simply things as, as I don't get innuendo, I don't get, you know, if your facial expression looks a certain way and you're expecting me to know that I'm upset with you, I totally don't get that. Um, so if you have expectations that I'm just going to understand something, I would tell people, you know, if you don't say it, it doesn't exist in my world. Um, so what it did is it made us better communicators because they realized that just as instinctive as this, it is, is for them to use um, body language and social cues, all things that you learn around the age 18 to 12, 18 months to two years old, you just have this interpreter in your brain that starts to kick in where you know what people mean by how they say it, their way their face looks, the way they hold their hands. I don't have that interpreter. So I had to help people to understand I don't get those things. So if you, if you're leaning on that to understand, you know, where our relationship is at in the moment, we're probably going to always miss each other. So here's what we have to do. We just have to be extremely brutally honest with one another. So, but people hearing that from me helped them to understand that, um, you know what, I can't depend on nonverbal cues. This is the world that he lives in. And so we, we meet halfway and then also giving each other grace. I understand that my the way that my brain works is instinctive to me. The way that quote unquote neurotypical brains work is instinctive to them. So I don't hold it against people who do things that are instinctive to them, just as I don't ask them to hold it against me, things that are instinctive to me. So that was very helpful to just at least for the first time in my life have an audience who would say, okay, we want to know what it's like to be you. Um and to understand you and how we could better accommodate you so that you can be the best version of Lamar that you could be. Uh, so that was extremely, extremely helpful. As, as a matter of fact, uh, in my past church, I spent about a year uh, outside of regular staff meetings, just sitting down with my staff and explaining things to them. And we went through personality assessments, but I also used that as an opportunity to teach them about autism, about not just how my brain works, but how people on the spectrum see things often. Um, and it made it even made our church a lot better because we we were able to start paying attention to the things that normally people don't pay attention to unless they have someone in their life who's impacted by autism. What are some of the maybe misconceptions that believers have or things that Christians have said to you that have hurt you and it's from a lack of empathy? Mm. Yeah, one that stands out. Um, and I, and I think I talk about it in the book where I had, um, a former member of the church I passed at, at the time, um, who had a difficult time with me, um, in their words, attaching myself to the label of autism, because f from their perspective, I seemed to be doing well. They felt like, you know, I was, I was doing a fairly decent job at passion. They enjoyed, you know, my preaching and teaching style. Um, so they just couldn't understand why would you label yourself that way? Um, and, and for your listeners, a lot of people online know me as autism pastor, which is not actually a term I came up with. It was someone in the autism community who kind of coined that phrase. Um, and so I changed all my handles on social media just because it made it easier for people in the autism community to find me. Um, but this person just couldn't understand 
uh, why I would label myself that way. And I remember telling them that, you know, it's only a problem if you think those two terms don't go together. So what it did is it exposed the, the stigma um, that you didn't believe that someone uh, with autism could be a great passer. And if, and if in your eyes I was being a good passer, then I couldn't possibly uh, claim this label of autism, which, which I told this person that I don't see that as a contradiction, and I don't think that it's offensive to God. Uh, similarly to God calling Moses and Moses says, you know, I don't speak well. I have a speech impediment. I have this speech disability. And God says, you know, I know that I'm the one who created you. Um, I'm still calling you. He did give Moses an accommodation by allowing his brother to go with him to help him. Uh, but God very much still saw me as a person that could be used to build his kingdom. And so that wasn't an offense to God. And I don't think it should be offense to other people. So, so it was hurtful. The good thing is, is that the conversation went for about two and a half hours and it ended well. Uh, but in the beginning, it was, you know, it was very hurtful that um, not only did this person not was not able to see me in that light, uh, really wanted to separate me from my disability as if that made me somehow more acceptable. I don't think that that's how they meant it. But when I presented it to them, I was sharing with them that Essentially, what you're saying is that in order for me to be an acceptable pastor and servant, I need to separate myself from this disability, which I don't think is fair to ask of anyone with a disability. And that's part of the reason why there's so much shame and stigma still in our faith communities, because we want to have people who uh, have different experiences with in the world, whether it's physical, developmental, intellectual, again, you, you want us to separate those things out in order to be more acceptable and um, usable to God in service to his kingdom. So, so it was offensive, but I think they didn't realize what they were saying. Um, and after having that conversation, it, it did end well, and they were able to see where I was coming from and why I continue to use that quote unquote label as a way of trying to break down that stigma. It is still very much possible for God to use whoever God chooses to use, and they don't have to separate themselves from the disability in order to be more acceptable uh, to you. In fact, we're asking the world to be more accommodating to allow persons like myself to serve in their fullest capacity. Yeah. And I think, I think it's such a powerful way to improve inclusion in the church and to show others what autism looks like in a church context and also in mm -hmm. a church leadership context. Mm -hmm. And as you have you know, developed a community and as people have reached out to you uh, from the autism community, I'm curious about concerns or things you're noticing about the church and the church's lack of um, understanding at times um, or churches that have built barriers to those with autism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I should say that um, most of what I see, and this is not always the case, most of what I see is unintentional barriers um, that sort of are rooted in just ignorance. And I don't use ignorance in a negative way. I use it in a way of just not knowing. Um, so, so most of what I've encountered is um, churches not understanding some of the unintentional barriers that they put up. A, a large part of that is, and you talked about leadership, a large part of that is I think that a lot of churches, um, particularly in the West, because that's what I've studied, 
um, a large a large section of churches in the West have followed the patterns of what it means to do church, but that sort of standard was set by a group of people who all shared the same neurology. And so when you look at the standard practices in most churches in the West, you'll find that there were probably no persons like myself who sat at the table and helped to decide how we shape our worship services, our small groups, Sunday school, if that's what your church does, our mission, vision, and values. There were not a lot of uh, autistic people who were at the table who were saying, you know, that's good, but for someone like myself, that could be a challenge. Um, so whenever you have the same group, same types of minds creating anything, it's always going to include some unintentional barriers that are just due to, to ignorance, just not knowing. So a lot of what I've seen is just simply the way that we do church has never really included uh, not just people with autism, but the voices of disabled people at the table to help shape what the church should look like. So naturally you're going to have these obstacles and barriers, which is why you don't see a lot of people with autism or other disabilities in the church because these barriers have been put up. So, you know, just a great practical example of that. Uh, one of the things that I got rid of uh, in my last church and even in my current church is most churches will have a section on the service where they encourage guests to greet one another and to, you know, find someone new and shake their hands and hug, which is a very typical part of the Western church. And it's a very needed part for those who you want to create a high touch environment. Well, for persons like myself who have severe social anxiety or even other persons who have anxiety disorders or OCD, um, people who have sensory processing issues like myself who don't necessarily like to be touched unless they initiate it. Those are unintentional barriers. Um, so I kind of did a straw poll, not a scientific poll in both of the churches that I've passed over the last uh, 11, 12 years. And a large percentage of the people who were coming late to church, missing the worship experience, were coming late to miss that part. They weren't coming late because they didn't like the music. They weren't coming late because they were just late people. They were coming late because somewhere in between the second and third song, there's this time where you are forcing people to interact. And for people with, again, OCD, social anxiety, sensory processing issues, uh, even just extreme introverts, that was extremely uncomfortable time of the service, and they'd rather miss that. So they get there, they time it to get there at the time of the sermon. Um, now, these are the people that we complain about every week. Why is everybody coming late? We tried all these different tricks to get people to come early, you know, give away prizes at the beginning, all kinds of things that churches do, not realizing that we put up an unintentional barrier for persons like myself. Um and it actually increased the number of people who were actually showing up on time because they didn't have to fear participating in a part of the service that exacerbated their invisible disability. So that's just one example. But when you create churches again, and we include different parts of the service, and the worship service is just a small part of it, but when we create services and craft services, and we don't have persons at the table who can represent various disabilities, we always end up with those types of things happening. And then we wonder why there's a large segment of people who don't participate in those types of things that our church is offering. Um, so that's just one example of how a lot of times churches put up barriers that are unintentional. It's just, they don't know. They don't know that that's a problem for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think um, 
what's also hard on top of that is like you mentioned the social stigma and also i'm thinking about parents with kids who have autism and you give some fascinating statistics around how many families end up leaving church mm-hmm. when a loved one has autism because it can be so difficult and also uh, it, it can be very a, a private diagnosis that they don't want to share with just anybody but they also don't want to have to explain why maybe their child is acting a certain way in the service or mm-hmm. doesn't want to hear loud music uh, from the worship team, right? Like there's all these like things that are, there's that what you just mentioned, these unintentional barriers mm-hmm. that uh, quote neuro, neurotypical people might not be aware of that they should be aware of so that they can uh, reduce those barriers. But then there's also that added pressure that people feel like, well, we can't just fit in anymore. Like this isn't working. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering maybe you can maybe talk about that situation where, because it is really, it's really heart wrenching to see families who want to be included. They want to be part of the church community, but they feel um, different. They feel like I can't fit in anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think one of the things that I discovered in sharing my diagnosis was a huge uh, win for um, the church that, that I lead now and the church that I previously led when I disclosed my diagnosis. And that was, it It gave some room for us to start chipping away at the shame and the stigma. It became much more comfortable for families, um, whether they wanted to disclose an official diagnosis or not, um, to talk about some of the challenges that their child or their teenager or their young adult um, may be facing and why they didn't seem to fit in. Um, so so a lot of times I think one of the largest things that the church can do is to make the church a safe space and a brave space for people to talk about the things that uh, are traditionally taboo in the church and even in society um, and to chip away that shame and stigma. So once it became an open conversation, uh, it it actually helped us as a church to get more information from parents or for those people who were not showing up to church or to understand why that one family or those three families only show up to church once every six to eight weeks. Um, it wasn't that they were any less committed. It was because of like you're saying, they're struggling and they don't fit in. And sometimes they just have, you know, a heck of a week, you know, with all the doctor's appointments in school and IEPs that they just can't get to church every week. And so from the outside looking in, uh, we're judging, commitment levels. And really it is a matter of creating an environment where they're free to talk about the reasons why they're not very engaged in the church, whether it's they don't fit in or they just have a lot of extreme challenges. They're tired by the time Sunday comes. But I found once I stood up as a leader and said, this is my diagnosis, it made it okay for everyone to talk about. So we did have a large number of people who divulged official diagnosis, but we also had a large number of people who said, these are the accommodations that my child will need if if you're going to include them into children's ministry on Sunday morning. So we didn't necessarily need an official diagnosis. They gave us the tips and tools to say, if you want little Johnny to be a part of this, here's five things that you can do to make sure that he's included. Um, so everything from sound. Um, so, you know, we started providing uh, noise canceling headphones, fidget toys, sensory rooms. Um, things like the parents would write down on index cards, 
you know, if he displays this behavior, try these three things. If he does this, you know, do these two things. Um, I'm sending him with his favorite blanket or I'm sending him with his, you know, his favorite fidget toy, all ways of those families coming alongside us as a church. Because oftentimes I think what happens is um, churches kind of know on the periphery that some of the things that we're doing can be barriers, but it, it can sometimes feel so overwhelming. Like we don't know what to do. When you created the church, the culture in the church where it's safe to talk about that and families know they're not going to be judged, they'll tell you what needs to be done in order to include them. They'll tell you the things that that are barriers for them. And so I just found that the number one tool to creating a better environment was to make it safe to talk about those things for so people don't have to hide and be ashamed and embarrassed that, yes, my child may yell out in the middle of the service, but now that we know that it's okay and nobody's going to, the whole church is not going to turn around and stare at us uh, or the pastor or the deacons are not going to ask us not to come back. Once we know that we'll share with you everything that you need to know to be able to create a space that's accommodating for us and our family. So I think it starts with the church being brave enough to talk about things that it doesn't talk about, preach and teach about it, have it as a part of your small groups, make it, an environment where people are constantly trying to learn about various disabilities and some of the the barriers um, that the church has put up, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and then allow those families to have a voice to say, these are things that are, are problematic and we can help you to be able to change those things if you're willing to change them. Mm, that's beautiful. I love all the accommodations that you've made and really just by listening the congregation listening to the needs and then also how you built such a safe and inclusive culture where people feel free to be able to share their feelings like that Mm -hmm. that's huge Uh, and i feel like because some of these conversations can be very uncomfortable to have Mm -hmm. um so, so i see reasons why many churches won't have them because it's it can be uncomfortable and i'm wondering uh do you have advice for those church leaders ministry leaders who they're listening to you. They've read your book mm-hmm. and they're realizing the importance of creating these safe spaces, but they've never done it before. And they're just wondering like, what's like a first step to begin that process? Yeah. So I would say start small. Um, it, it doesn't have to be something that's overwhelming. Um, one of the things that I, I did in the past and I know other churches have done this, um, we would try to find, something that was already happening in the community or something that is sort of globally or nationally known and hitch our wagon to that. So for example, autism awareness and acceptance month is April. That's a great time. If your church has never dived into any of these topics, just take that month and maybe have um, some information from a lot of great organizations that are doing this type of work, provide that um, as a part of the church, maybe share a video uh, maybe have a family from your church um, to share, you know, two, three minute video of what it's like. Um, so there's lots of resources. I think pastors and leaders need to understand that you're not alone in this walk. So you don't have to be an expert. You can tap into a lot of resources that are out there uh, that can help you to provide uh, some resources to your church. So so start small. And my, and my past church, I haven't had a chance to do this in my current church, because I've only been there two years and COVID has taken away a lot of that. Um, but in my previous church, we just started with an autism in April. We did a breakfast on a Saturday 
and and we just started there. Um, some of the local restaurants were kind enough to sponsor the breakfast. Um, we asked for a five dollar donation so that we could start building the pool of necessary funds to buy some of the equipment that we needed. Um, and people are glad to donate to that once they knew what the cause was. And then I would just teach about autism for 20 minutes um, and then introduce people, um, have people start, uh, you know, have a couple of professionals there from the community, um, you know, therapists, those types of things who could also help answer questions uh, and then start connecting our church members with resources. And over the years, those grew to be very large events, uh, but that also spawned into other things like lunch and learns. So maybe, uh, one day after church, uh, you know, if you have a fellowship hall or something like that, you know, provide lunch and ask people who are interested in this type of ministry to hang around. So you don't necessarily need to bring it all the way to the largest gathering first, start small, build supporters within the church, people who probably already have someone in their family who's impacted by autism or any, another disability, whether it's a grandparent, maybe they don't live with that family member, but they, you know, their child or their grandchild uh, is backed by it. And you, and you start to raise supporters. You raise supporters by inviting those family members who are directly impacted or individuals themselves who have a physical developmental or intellectual disability. And once you build a core team of supporters, then you have more than one person who's being a champion for this cause. Then you can start to bring it to the larger congregation by you know, maybe the next year in April, you, you preach a series on disability uh, in the church or disability in, in Jesus. Um, and then you slowly build from there to where it becomes a natural, organic part of your church. And 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 the other thing I would say is I often encourage pastors and leaders. Um, I'm not necessarily asking you to do anything that your church doesn't already do. Stick to your mission, vision, and values of your church, your program. If you do small groups, do small groups. If you do Sunday school, do Sunday school. What we're saying is, is to add disability and the ability to learn about it into the normal rhythm of your church. So have a Sunday school class that just focuses, that does a, a book club on my book or some other great resources out there. Um so that it becomes a natural part of how you do church. So you're not actually adding anything, you're just adding um, the curriculum, you're adding the conversation to what your church already does so that it becomes a natural part of your church. So start small, but then bring it to the larger congregation, build supporters for that ministry within your church, and then just take the conversation of disability and add it to all the elements of what you already do in your church. Yeah, that's fantastic. Those are great suggestions about just getting those conversations going into all the different ministries that are happening already, like the existing mm -hmm. ministries at the church. How do you get those conversations going there, those mm -hmm. studies going there? Um, one of the most powerful parts that I found in your book, uh, aside from just all the, the brilliant insights into make, how to make our churches more inclusive for our disabled communities, is around disability theology. And I'm really curious about how autism has magnified your view of God and how that's helped you um, share the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the largest things is that as far as uh, autism and like my views of God. So, so after I was officially diagnosed, I started to realize 
because again, autism is is unique in a lot of ways when we talk about it being a developmental disability because it is it is neurology, right? It is literally how my brain is wired. Um, and I don't want to say the consequences of that, but um, the result of that is probably a better way is that because of the way my brain is wired, I tend to often see things much differently uh, than most people. So I would tell people, you know, the newest numbers are one in 54. If I'm in the room with 53 other people, I'm almost always likely to see something that someone doesn't see um, or to experience the world in a way that is far different from people whose brains are wired and what's quote unquote, you know, called neurotypical. What I've learned is that I've, I've learned to leverage it as a strength. And so a lot of the ways that I see the biblical texts, uh, a lot of the ways that I even experience my faith tend to come at it from a different angle. And oftentimes what I've learned is it, when that's allowed to be a part of the conversation, it brings a whole other angle to people being able to understand God, faith in the Bible that is traditionally not there, which is why I advocate for having persons with disabilities as leaders, because you, you can not just them help shape the church, but helping to shape theology is to have a, a far different perspective uh, on the text. And so I, I tend to see things that a lot of people don't see. And even some of my colleagues who are in the disability community send this one of the things that I talk about in the book is that, you know, all theology is contextual, which includes the fact that uh, we have to understand that we don't just have bodies. We are bodies, which means everything that I experience in this world and in this life and even in faith comes through the filter of the body that I've been given, which then gives me an entirely different perspective. And one of the things that I share also in the book is that, one of the primary uh, images of Christianity in the New Testament is this idea of flesh versus spirit. Um, and Paul talks about that a lot, and he, he does a lot of great theology on that. Who better to help us to understand the realities of that than persons who are living with disabilities? Because for them, it's not just an idea. I literally live with things that my brain sometimes does in my body that I don't want it to do. And what I tell people is my faith often has to lead a rebellion against my body because sometimes my brain, whether it's extreme sensory processing, if I get into into a situation where my brain is overloaded sensory wise, I can spend the next two days in bed. Um, But I also have to have the faith to know that, you know, that's not something that can totally control and define my life. Um, and so there are a lot of persons in the disability community, whether again, whether it's intellectual, physical, or developmental, who have that as a real challenge. It's not just ideology, um, but it brings such a vibrancy to understanding God in a different way and theology in a different way, because it's not just something that we talk about. We actually have to live every day with this contest between our faith and our spirit and our bodies. Uh, and Paul does such a beautiful job of talking about that. Primarily because I believe that Paul also had a disability. He talks about his thorn Uh, in Galatians. He references the fact that he stopped in that province of Galatia, not because he chose to, but because his body made a decision for him. And he goes on to say that some of them were so kind to him that they would have given them, given him their eyes um, if they could have, which is a nod to the fact that he was going blind. 
Um, some of the early church fathers were actually persons with disabilities. Um, even our understanding of uh, the Trinity, um, the doctrine of the Trinity, first came from a church father who actually happened to be blind. So there's a lot of ways that people with disabilities experience the world and faith in God in ways that are not necessarily typical. But when that when there's space allowed for that, it creates a much healthier and vibrant theology of who God is um, and how we experience life. And I think it just adds to our understanding of how to how to properly understand the character and the nature nature of God and all these other uh, doctrines that we hold so dear. We get a fuller picture of that when we allow persons with disabilities to add to that conversation. And I got to say, I stopped in my tracks when I was reading your book. When I came up, I came upon the section where you talk about a disabled God. Mm. And I'm wondering if you talk about that. That is such a such a powerful phrase. I had to stop right there and underline it. And I wonder if you can kind of unpack that. Yeah. So I I um was carrying on some of the great work for for those who are not familiar with her, the late Nancy Eastland, um, who was a professor uh, at Canada School of Theology at Emory University, where I got my Master of Divinity. Uh, and she herself was disabled. And she wrote a book actually called The Disabled God. I quote uh, a couple of her chapters in there, just really picking up on that work. So that derives from something that I think that we don't often really think about uh, because I think we, most of us who grew up in the church have been taught a sanitized Sunday school version of the crucifixion. And so uh, one of the things I talk about is what a real Roman crucifixion would have looked like. So, so we're starting with the premise that we believe as Christians that Jesus is God. Um, if you look at what a real Roman crucifixion would have looked like, um, it would have been terribly, not just torturous, but disabling. Um, the nine inch spikes would have went through his wrists, which I talk about in the book, which have, would have torn somewhere between seven and eight tendons. Um, in a real Roman crucifixion, the legs would have been turned sideways and a spike would have been driven somewhere around the Achilles tendon, which would have torn that. And I've torn my Achilles tendon. I talk about it in the book. That's not an easy injury to get over. So if Jesus does come back, and his resurrected body still bears the marks of that torture, which meant they were not healed. We've got to wrestle with the fact, what does that mean for us understanding his relationship to disability? Uh, we also have to fast forward to the book of Revelation, where it talks about uh, where John, John the Revelator says that he saw an image of uh, the lamb slash lion that was mortally wounded, yes, standing in, in victory. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, which is a nod also to the fact that the way that Jesus returned, um, he returned with the body uh, that was tortured and disabled without it having been healed. Yet the pain and the suffering that's associated with it was no longer there. What does that say about the fact that he chose to identify himself, even to Thomas, uh, he chose to identify himself by the disabling marks that he occurred as a result of him becoming one of us, becoming human. So uh, a lot of Easton's work in my work says that, okay, if that's true, um, and we can read that in scripture, we have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus bore the marks of disability. And if he is God, then that's where the term, the disabled God comes from. What I'm challenging people to think about theologically is that that says a lot profoundly to God's 
relationship to ultimately identifying with a very marginalized group. Um, and, and, and Jesus goes to the extreme to which he will identify with the human experience. So in that day, you know, often it was the, it was women, orphans, the disabled, um, who are the most marginalized group. So between, you know, that and anywhere in between, Jesus is able to identify to the extent he goes all the way to the extreme to be able to identify with uh, a very marginalized group who had physical impairment. Uh, and so I think we, we have to we really have to wrestle with those texts in Scripture and to understand the lengths by which God allowed himself to be disabled to identify with the full breadth of the human experience. So much so that when when Jesus returns back to life, he doesn't erase that. He uses that as the identifying marks to which he he communicates his resurrection. Um, so I just encourage people to to really really wrestle with that and to, to ask ourselves, what does that say about God? Mm, that is so powerful, and I I feel like that that disability lens just magnifies the love of God even more, mm. and and. And the stories you've told with in the very beginning with Moses and with Paul and now with Christ, you just see this like running theme of disability and how this lens shows us just like so much more empathy mm -hmm. um, in our Christ, in our God. And, um, and certainly your book, as you have outlined ways that our churches our ministry leaders can do a better job to build more safe, inclusive, uh, empathic uh, churches is just, you've done such a beautiful job uh, with your book, providing really practical steps and also giving us um, a better perspective of what it's like to have autism and how we can better serve our autism communities. So I want to thank you so much for writing this. I found it mm. super helpful and it's super practical as well. So thank you so much. For those that want to follow you, want to um, read more of your work, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah, so I have a website. It's uh, autismpastor.com. Uh, again, autismpastor.com. Uh, typically, that's the best way because when you go to the website, uh, you can find links to my books, especially the latest one, Disability in the Church. Um uh, my podcast, which is fairly new, um, my blog, where you can read a lot of the blogs and articles, even on the front page, it has links to some of the most, um, most read articles that are written for other organizations like Christianity Today and other places. Um, so it's sort of a clearinghouse and then there's ways on there that you can contact me. Uh, but if you're primarily looking to find me on social media, on Twitter as Autism Pastor, on Facebook, uh, I have my personal page, Lamar Hardwick, but also another page, Autism Pastor. Um, and then honestly, I've tried to not be hard to find by design. So even if you just Google my name, uh, you can pretty much find out how to get in contact with me and any work that I've been working on. Awesome. Well, Lamar, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed our discussion. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Dr. Lamar Hardwick about his book entitled Disability in the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. It's a beautiful and eye-opening book on ways to make our spiritual homes more inclusive, especially for those 
with disabilities. So how has this conversation on disability and the church impacted you? Let me know by messaging me on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at mikedelgado.org. Next time, we're going to chat with Pastor Douglas S. Birch about his book entitled Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. We chat about his fascinating research and thesis on social media while he was in seminary, how Christians can hurt each other with their social media posts, ways to be aware of the echo chambers that we fall into, and how to better handle criticism online. I had a lot of fun talking to Douglas about his views on social media, and it's definitely a conversation you don't want to miss. So that's next time. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating this show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care, and we'll chat more next time. Thank you.